0: Politics is all about is keeping strangers in the same room talking to each other across differences that are fundamental. Differences of race, differences of class, differences of language. And I'm a liberal Democrat all the way down because that's just such an important thing to get right and a lot of it's hanging by a thread in the twenty-first century.
1: Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name is Giles Fraser and this is the podcast where we talk to interesting, well-known, clever people and try and work out what they're all on about. And uh, today I'm absolutely delighted to have with me um, Michael Ignatieff, uh, academic, politician, man of letters, um, honorary Brit. Very good to have you (laughs) with us, Michael. Nice to be
0: here, Giles. Thank you for the invitation.
1: (laughs) Uh, the way this, this works is what we usually do is um, I just ask you to start with, if you could sort of paint a picture um, for us of where you grew up and the sort of values that were there in your home and something a little bit about your mum and dad and just to situate you in your thinking. Why? Charles, I was born in
0: 1947 in Toronto. My father was a Canadian civil servant. That's important because he was working at the U.N. in 1945, 46,
1: 47. And lots I'm, of stuff happened in the
0: U.N. Yeah, in 47, I'm, 47. And I'm the son of a, a wartime generation um, who were present at the creation of that bright, hopeful world after the Second World War, great beliefs in the U.N. Other fact about me is that my mum and dad met in London during the war. Um... During the Blitz, that my mother, oh, really? my mother and father were in London between 1938 and my mother till 45, my father till 44. They were bombed out. They went through the whole experience because my father was working for Canada House in Trafalgar Square, yeah. and my mum was working for British military intelligence in a kind of humble role, and. They met and married and fell in love, but the wartime experience was formative for them because they saw a Britain that, you know, was extraordinary, and they were very emotionally shaped forever by this experience of kind of wartime solidarity and wartime suffering and stuff. They well, were you never, be, no- you? Yeah. they were never nostalgic about <clears throat> London and the Blitz because it was bloody awful and people they knew died and things like that. But that memory of solidarity on the one hand and then this set of hopes after the second world war when they went to the my dad then worked in and around the UN for a number of of years and then went on to be a public servant in Canada so i canadian that's the where i come from my father was also a re- refugee he he was born in russia and so i grew up with a sense that what it was like to be homeless and be a refugee, I had a very privileged, easy upbringing, but there was a kind of memory of hard times in my parents' life that shaped me a lot i think um, then you've I, written
1: about your um your father's russian past haven't you and and yeah. the fact that he comes from a a sort of nobility i guess you might um russian nobility yes my my
0: grandfather was account and was the last minister of education in the last government of Tsar Nicholas II and the family lost everything in the Russian revolution escaped to England and then to Canada that's why I'm a Canadian um and so it's an odd family in the sense that they were you know kind of aristocrats who fell down the social ladder yeah. to the bottom and had to start up again so my story is a story of you know a Canadian immigrant family made good and so they were fiercely Canadian as you are when you've it's your adopted home, not your natural home so that changes my view of refugees it changes my view of these folks are often more attached to their countries of adoption than people the people are attached to their country of birth so all that shaped me from the from the beginning then i then i did history as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto and then I went and got a PhD at Harvard and then I was at King's College Cambridge for a while and then I went over the monastery wall from academia into the into grub street yes. <laughs> was a you know was a hack in London for about 18 20 years and m- met my second wife here and and you know so I I'm not really a Londoner, but this is, you know, London's pretty important By adoption, make... <laughs> yeah, by if not adoption. by birth. By adoption,
1: <laughs> yeah. Did your um, grandfather's experience of, of the revolution, all that sort of stuff, did, did, is there a sort of visceral anti-communism that comes through the Ignatieff line? You'd think so, wouldn't you? Because yeah. um, there were
0: visceral conservative anti-communists in the Russian emigration. My family was never part of it. In fact, there was a lot of sympathy for the Russian experiment. For example, during the Second World War, my aging grandfather would sit there listening to CBC radio and the BBC radio, you know, praying that the Soviet armies would defeat the Germans and tremendous sense of um, solidarity and emotional connection to the battle of the heroic russian people and even some desire for the soviet experiment to succeed in parts of the family but i'd have to say my dad you know who worked for the canadian government most of his life was pretty viscerally anti-communist and i'd say i was too i just I just don't like tyranny you know i mean Felt it was a tyranny, pure and simple. Didn't never thought that there was something good happening there. It just, it was a soul-crushing regime, and i I felt that then. I feel that now. Um, I'm now married to a Hungarian. Um, she grew up under Kadar's communism in you know the 50s, 60s, and 70s. She thought communism was soul-crushing. I do too. You know, um, doesn't mean that you know we all think capitalism is free of blemish or difficulty but it is a
1: regime of freedom and so i suppose one of the things i'm asking you by pointing towards or poking around at with that question is to try and work out what some of the when you were younger some of the sort of i don't know pre-political roots of your politics as it were you know some of the ways in which some of the sort of forces that might have shaped it
0: oh yeah i think um shaped by the hopes for the UN after the Second World War, shaped by the fact that my parents were young public servants in Washington after they were in New York with the UN then they went to Washington and experienced McCarthyism. You know, they had friends who had to leave town because they were suspected of being communists. So that's the other side of it. They were anti-communists who hated the ways in which McCarthyism turned... Uh, suspicions of communism into a source of tyranny in a free society so that's a that's a force i think i grew up in a standard and i'm also a canadian liberal i mean my my you know i've got heroes whom i don't think any brit would know anything about like lester b pearson who is our prime minister <laughs> mike pearson basically created our public pension system and our public health system so And he did that in the 50s and 60s, and uh, so I'm a kind of social welfare liberal from the get-go, and I'm I'm a Canadian all the way down. Also, because of another part of my growing up, which is we became a multicultural society in my you know the the Toronto I grew up in was basically a white uh, country, an immigrant city. But white immigration, and then from the 60s onward, it, it became one of the three or four most multicultural society, cities in the world. So that now, in in my lifetime, in before I pop my clogs, uh, someone like me will be a minority in my in my own city, and I actually think this has been a pretty terrific development. Uh, terrific because. We've learned to live together. We've learned to share stuff together. The, the wheels haven't come off the bus. It's successful. So I, I was very much shaped by what I call Canadian multiculturalism. and also shaped by another thing that's Canadian, which is that, you know, our political system, you have to speak two languages. So I grew up, je parle un peu de français. Well, it gave me a sense of what politics is all about. What politics is all about is keeping strangers in the same room talking to each other across differences that are fundamental. Differences of race, differences of class, differences of language. And I'm a liberal Democrat all the way down because that's just such an important thing to get right. And a lot of it's hanging by a thread yeah. in the 21st century.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's what I really want to talk to you about. Sure. I mean, and when you talk about the experience of immigration in Toronto... And your uh understanding of that as a positive thing. Yeah. I mean lots of, you know, that's that's not been the experience of sure. you know, lots of people. And uh yeah. they might say that's a sort of rather Brahmin experience, yes. <laughs> experience of immigration. Yeah. And maybe that our politics is so I mean, you know pretty much everything about the the challenge to liberalism is 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 mm. cited there, isn't
0: it? Yeah, although if you if you switch from Toronto to London, you know, I've been in London since I was a graduate student in the early 70s. London has been transformed from the Windrush generation onwards, and I think there are a lot of Londoners, whatever race and origin, who think this is a good thing. This is, terrific. This is a richer, Definitely. warmer, Definitely. more interesting, more compassionate, more interesting society. Um, it's been good for all of us. Some of it hangs by a thread. If you have one bit of terrible policing, it can go south. If you have some, you know, fanatic taking out a knife, it, you know, it can, you know, it can be damaged. It can be damaged by uh, racism. It can be damaged by stupid politicians stirring it up. I'm an incurable optimist about people living side by side, you know, leave them alone, keep the politics out of it, keep the shit stirrers out of it if I excuse yeah, my yeah, language. No, 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 no. You know, le- let people to get on with it. They can produce a neighborhood, a community, something. Uh, and it's always menaced by vicious politics. It's always menaced by racist demagogues. It's always menaced by fanatics. But if you can if you can hold the circle, uh, I don't think multicultural London has failed, and I don't think multicultural Europe has failed. And uh, I, I I think we want to hang in there because it's this is not some medicine we have to swallow. It enlarges the human experience to be together and to negotiate our differences and listen across differences of race, class, and color. And I'm committed to it. I I, I think it's it's enriched and made my life better.
1: One of the sort of on the ground experiences of not multiculturalism, I guess, but globalization, Mm. um, which is a, a different way in which Um, you know, place meets the the Mm. wider world. That's a more complicated. Mm. uh, um, I mean, I'm a vicar in South London. I have a a, a very diverse congregation, black majority church, but my parish is also a place where a lot of the old flats from the wartime have been pulled down post-war. New flats of posh ones have been built, and they're So many of them are bought off plan in places like China and the Far East. And actually, I have a parish where in lots of streets, the lights are never on because people and people who live there have been sort of priced out of it. And this experience of, as it were, the sort of liberal impact, if you can put it that way, on place, this is much more problematic Oh that's a st-
0: I think it's a great story you're telling me and it's a story I could tell you in Toronto or Vancouver or you know lots of European cities and that's a story to me about regulation I, I I mean it's a story about let's preserve some housing stock let's have some residency requirements let's have some tax on foreign ownership I don't I don't like dark streets that are owned by Foreigners. I don't like a situation where housing stock basically becomes a tradable commodity for yeah. some global elite that's never there. Nobody does I don't like it and I, and I just think we've got to step up and the next mayor of London, whoever he or she is has got to grab hold of that and I, because I, I think it does create resentment and the wider issue about globalization is I think also a, a, a you know a real issue for all of us. I, I don't um, we've, <laughs> we've liberated capital. And so, late capital is fully mobile. A couple of clicks of a of a on a computer screen, and you can invest in London, divest in London, move. And globalization is returning financial rewards off scale to some and not sharing it with others. Uh, and these are that this is the challenge of a but isn't this 21st what...
1: century politics? But isn't this partly what liberalism, which is your your. Your great love isn't this partly what liberalism has done? It's sort of freed capital more than it's freed people. I'd
0: even, I, I you know, liberals liberals are always uh, you know we're always flagellating ourselves. So yeah. I, I will flagellate myself with the <laughs> best of them on this one. Uh, look, what I'd argue with, I'd say that's neoliberalism you're talking oh, about, not liberalism. My liberalism is, you know, social welfare, public regulation. I just think liberalism exists to tame capitalism. I I would say that's what it always was. It is the Canadian liberalism I grew up with in the 40s and 50s. It's, you know, my liberalism is pretty close to Clem Attlee in that sense. You know, you've got, to, you've got to have a public health service. You've got to have controls on, um, you've, got to, you've got to tax the rich. You've got, everybody has to make a contribution. That's my kind of liberalism. Now, neoliberalism said, and it wasn't stupid, coming out of the 70s and 80s, liberalism overregulated the society I mean, I don't want to start saying good things about Margaret Thatcher, but the, the Britain I remember from the 1970s didn't work so well, okay? So she smashes it all up. And to your example, she smashed up the public housing, for example. She, she smashed up the, the council estates. Now, that was good for those who could buy, and it was devastating in terms of its the housing stock for London. So that's an example where neoliberalism, Thatcherian neoliberalism did huge damage, point taken, point conceded. And I would say in the 21st century, we've got to get back to a kind of vision of um, the progressive side, which says, listen, our job is to tame capitalism, to get it under control, to get this damn monster to work for our benefit. I am fervently anti-socialist and I'm fervently anti- anti-communist I mean that could
1: have been a, I mean, you, for the last three or four minutes I could have been talking to a socialist in this yeah, country yeah but I,
0: I'm, I'm not because I'm I'm very uh, suspicious of public ownership that is I just I think there are cases where public ownership can work really well um, and you know I'd never you know public health, health public health care clearly has to be under collective ownership and there are other cases where you you know um, I think it's important for the for public ownership of certain things, but here let me here be controversial. I don't think we can get climate change under control unless we use market incentives and basically price CO2 emissions out of business and create market incentives to bring you know the wind power and the electric on on scale you use market stuff and you use regu- state regulation but if you throw away the capacity to use the market you I think you're throwing one one of the key tools that makes for a decent society so that's what makes me a liberal if that makes me close to a social democrat I'm 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 happy I don't care about the li- yes, the no, labels I, I don't even mind being called a conservative because I'm a I'm a conservative on some things I think
1: all these labels What's good about the 21st century is they're all breaking apart. They are, aren't they? So I'm interested to know how this affects your politics. Because, you know, 20 years ago, left, right was the way in which we define the way in which we're different to each other. Now those, those categories don't work anymore.
0: Yeah, and they don't because, um, well, they don't work also because our loyalties are... What's more important to me that I am a male white person of a certain class in income and income in education, or that I'm left or right, many of these other identities, male, white, um, of a certain class and education, may be much more important than my political identity. What's paradoxical and really surprising is that while left and right have been emptied of their content, political identity has become... Much more salient over Brexit or you know, Brexit and the Remainers. It wasn't just my position on Britain's future in the European Union. It was like this is who I exactly. am, right? Exactly. And I think some of that's a terrible shame, in the sense that yes, Brexit mattered, whether you were for or against. But for God's sake, it's not an identity. It's a moment in your life, and maybe other identities are just much more important. And it'd be tragic if Remainers couldn't talk to Brexiteers and Brexiteers couldn't talk to Remainers, because God knows they've got plenty in common.
1: They've got But there was a passion comm- that returned to politics, which was, there, there was a good side to, the, to oh, what happened with Brexit, which was like the, the pub became vibrant with absolutely. debate. Absolutely, and,
0: and, and I, I was always against those people who said, Oh, Brexit's a shambles, the country's polarized and divided. I thought, as a, the outsider looking at this from a distance, this was a, a liberal democratic society having the most fundamental debate about its future of any society I've seen since the Second World War, and doing it with one or two terrible exceptions entirely peacefully. And so I loved, I mean, everybody, I think any person who loves democracy loved what happened which is a really that was democracy in action wasn't it rock and sock yeah. debate yeah. and and it elucidates something about democracy that i think we need to understand democracy is about conflict it's about the management of conflict people who say that because there's a lot of conflict and polarization that means democracy is in crisis don't understand what a democracy is Britain has just had one of the great democratic debates in any advanced liberal democracy that I've ever seen. And it's not over. This debate will go on and on, because Brexit hasn't actually happened, for God's sake. But it's a pretty inspiring example to to the rest of the world. In In other countries, these debates are suppressed, they're avoided, they're pushed down. You know, I wouldn't have called that referendum in 2016. I thought it was a mistake. But the debate that then happened was fundamental. And it surfaced discontents and hurts and anger that had been suppressed by the political system for 25 years. That's the sign of a healthy democracy. It's got to be a good thing.
1: Yeah, it's got to be a good thing. You famously made the leap from... I mean, not just from academia to journalism, but even more sort of foolishly, or whatever yeah. you want to describe yeah. it. And didn't it go well? It was God, it was fabulous. Yeah. Well, to, into politics. I <laughs> yeah. mean, that was that must have been an extraordinary quantum leap of yeah. of uh, you know how you have to conduct yourself and how you have to think and all that sort of yeah. stuff. It was two thousand and four, two thousand and five. A
0: bunch of Canadian liberals. I was teaching at Harvard came to me and said, would you like to run for office? And my wife and I had a long drink together and we both said to each other, well, what have we got to lose? (laughs) (laughs) All I would like to say to your listeners is if you ever have a conversation with your loved one, when you end up saying, what have we got to lose? You've clearly misunderstood what the choice is. Anyway, we went into it and for between 2005 and 2011, I was I was in Canadian politics and became the leader of the Liberal Party and then we got we got really crushed in the election um so it didn't end well but I you know I still think it was the right thing to do to go back to where this conversation started I'm the son of my father you know I'm the son of a guy who you know loves the country i've been liberal all my life it, i got an opportunity to you know put my name on a ballot paper and have a go and i had a go and it didn't work but it it taught me an enormous amount about the distance between you know talking about politics and doing it between thinking about politics and actually trying to convince someone to vote for you and that was an a huge learning experience yeah. for for me and, and, a, and a good one and made me at the end of the day more of a Democrat more of a convinced and passionate Democrat than I was before I'm utterly sentimental and utterly uncynical about Democratic politics having
1: done it uh, and I think the fact that I And having been that's, that's remarkably good to hear especially as you were you know you chewed up a bit Yeah, by yeah it.
0: I got I got chewed up but the thing about democratic politics is at its best, is you walk into a room of strangers, and all God's children are in the room. It's not like academia or journalism, where you're always, in a sense, in a self-selected group. In a political meeting, everybody is there, and you've got to find some way to speak to everybody in the room. And that challenge of being together with strangers and trying to bring them together so that there's a we, so that we speak as one, we think, we share a a common allegiance to a cause or making something better about the society. I mean, that's pretty moving stuff when when you've tried to do it. And and it, and, Do you think and,
1: academics are well
0: suited to that task? Oh no, we're we're the worst possible yeah. candidates for public office. <laughs> you know, because we talk in this complicated, fancy way, and and we should. I mean, academic. I, I have. I, I'm not going to talk down academic. It's just we're not very the transition from talking to a select disciplinary core and talking to you know, folks in a public meeting, the gap between those two.
1: And the need to footnote, sort of mentally speaking, the need to footnote everything you say is disastrous.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. You have to drop the footnotes, that's for sure. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm glad I did it. My wife is glad we did it together. Uh, uh, And I learned something interesting about politics. We shook in five and a half years... I'm picking this number out of the air, but it, it's it's not far wrong. Thirty-five thousand hands. In five and a half years, the number of times I had a, um, un- personally unpleasant experience, good number on the fingers of one hand. Really, now, they, Canadians
1: are nicer people. No,
0: no, <laughs> no, they don't vote for you, but they understand why you're doing it. Now contrast that with social media. On the other hand, my wife said to me. The one thing you're not going to do is look at your social media feed, because you wouldn't get out of bed. So what's interesting about 21st century democracy is the face-to-face stuff, by and large, I think many British politicians would say the same, is pretty okay. It's the, it's the disinhibition of the social media space, the ways in which people feel they're entitled to say anything, no matter how malicious, ill-informed. Vengeful and stupid, and there 's just a lot of trolls out there who you know do it for as it were for a living and I think some of that social media effect has been just downright pernicious in in politics, and that 's another thing that we may just have to have a difficult conversation about regulating but it 's a difficult conversation precisely because everybody benefits from the enormous freedom that the internet makes possible. But some of the internet is such an open sewer that regulating
1: you know, the internet doesn't sound a particularly liberal. <laughs> p- no, position. no, that, here,
0: that makes me, if that makes me conservative. So fine, yeah. but I just you know, if I hear mums and dads saying I can't let my kids on this thing because it's just there's so much vile poison on it, I think that's something that does require us to. Figure out, okay, what's the balance between the freedom we need to enjoy the incredible opportunities that the internet makes possible and
1: how do we keep the poison from poisoning our children, poisoning our politics? One of the reasons that I was really interested to talk to you is that, and I suppose apropos being beaten up a bit in, in Canadian politics, is that you've had a ringside seat of this sort of perhaps global movement that we've had over the last I don't know 10-15 years of liberalism struggling to win adherence and and hearts and minds and so forth and this rise of populism and I thought you'd have a very interesting take on look you know what, what, what happened to liberalism why has it struggled so much yeah. well let me talk to you a little
0: bit about the experience in Hungary because that you know this is a authoritarian populist regime that's been in power for a decade. It's probably,
1: probably worth saying to people who are listening to this, you set up, a, you're a part of yeah. a rector of the European university, which yes. had a Hungarian base, and uh, you're still yeah. doing that. I'm a,
0: Yeah, I'm the rector of Central European University, which was founded in 1991. It's based in Budapest. It was founded by George Soros a prominent liberal billionaire, and it was founded to be a school of social science that would assist the country making the transition from communism to liberal democracy. Twenty-five years on, uh, Viktor Orban, who um, the prime minister of the country, decided to throw us out of Budapest. And a huge battle then ensued, which we've lost because we've had to move our campus to vienna next door. So what do you learn from that experience? You you learn that in fact one of the things that's beating liberalism is a politics of enemies. Define an enemy like George Soros, uh, mobilize fear around that enemy, mobilize hatred towards that enemy, and he happens to be jewish, so there's a whole other thing that's going on here. And you can you can you can kind of push an electorate Uh, into supporting things that are essentially against their interest. I mean, you know, free universities are basically a good thing for a free society. You don't, if you don't have free universities pretty soon, you won't have a free society, you know, kind of. I think another thing that you learn from the Hungarian story, which is, I think, relevant across Europe, is just from 9-11 through the financial crisis of 2008, through the huge flow of migration into Europe in 2015, you're dealing with electorates that are frightened, economically insecure, and worried about their national identities, that is, whether these identities will survive. Brexit was, in some sense, a revolution in defense of a British national identity. Whatever you think about it, there was a strong feeling that we had to reassert who we were as a as a country as a as a culture, as a nation, as a tradition in Hungary. Mr. Orban taps into deep anxieties about whether there'll be a Hungary in fifty years. Hungary is a small country with a very distinctive national language, and globalization we talked about that a while ago. People think what I want to do is I want my children, grandchildren to be Hungarians and speak Hungarian pretty legitimate concern. It may be that liberals were so anxious to integrate Hungary into Europe and make us all kind of cosmopolitan uh, that we didn't pay enough respect, enough attention to people's need for roots, for belonging, for national identity. And so that created an opening where these right-wing populists went. The more disturbing thing to me, though, is that Almost every Hungarian will say, I believe in democracy, and democracy is better than the communist system we had. But if you ask them what democracy is, most of them will say, oh, that that's that thing we have with elections every four years. So it's just the ballot box. Yeah, and, and that's where I think there's a real challenge to democracy. There's a disagreement of what democracy is at the heart of our problems for, for some what we call populists, what democracy is, is just majority rule, period. And it doesn't mean minority rights, it doesn't mean rule of law, it doesn't mean constitutional protections, it doesn't mean free speech, for the. Me- it doesn't mean free media, it just means majority rule. And, and that's been the conservative
1: counter-revolution, I think, in the 21st century majority rule. And they've they've made the made the case that all those other things that you talk about are actually ways of preserving things over against the majority. Correct. And they've weaponized Correct. one against the other.
0: Correct. Significantly, they've made things like an independent judiciary, a free media, they made it sound as if this is a kind of elite conspiracy against the true interests of the majority. And in the states you see that that is um, Donald Trump's whole base of power is: I represent a uh, majority that's on the defensive, that's under attack from minorities, that's that, whose dominance in the culture is under attack from these minorities, and they and these minorities use all these institutions, like a free press and free institutions, to protect themselves. And I think this is doing some damage to democracy because you just can't have a democracy unless you have an independent judiciary, free media. Nobody likes the media, right? Everybody hates the media. I hate the media, right? <laughs> um, you know, nobody likes, you know, free universities, bloody professors telling us what to think. You know, all this stuff. The the institutions that keep us free are often very unpopular, Uh, but their job is to set power against power and protect us against the tyranny of the majority, to protect us against the concentration of power in the hands of a prime minister or president. And that understanding of democracy is much weaker than it was 25 years ago. And, And that's where I think the Hungarian story has some lessons because Orban has taken this electoral majority and hammered the courts, hammered the press, hammered the universities, and basically eviscerated the substance of democracy such that it's a democracy only in name. And that should
1: give every European some pause for thought. Something you hinted at just a few moments ago, which I'm interested in picking up, is did liberalism broadly speaking miss a trick by failing to learn how to sort of speak the language of place of belonging mm. of you know when people say love your i love my country or no. something like that which can be a a, ben, a benign important thing for people that that was always traduced as you know somehow subtly racist or something like that that it, that it, it went down a took a wrong turn in in making those links. I think there's some truth to that, although some
0: of that's a caricature. I mean, you know, some of the most powerful expressions of love of country have been expressed by liberals. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was a was a liberal, and very few people have expressed what America is better than he is. And he understood just how deep patriotic and national feeling runs in a people. I do think liberals have been slow to understand you can't run a democracy unless you have national feeling. The difficulty that a liberal sees is uh, the question is always who belongs. Who's part of the nation? And the trouble with nationalism has been the ways it is, wh- is the ways in which it's become a battering ram in which we exclude them. You know, Farage's nationalism is perfectly authentic, but there's a lot of you know, my
1: country is not your country. You don't belong. Yeah. Uh, that kind of stuff, and huh. and so. People don't understand. I, I can say that my mother's the best mother in the world without having any, without making any comment about yours. Yeah, but, you yes, exactly. and, I, and there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to say yes. something yes. positive about my country without yes. in any way disparaging your yeah. own.
0: And this gets back to multiculturalism. I don't want to tell you, ha- give you happy talk about multiculturalism. It's tough. There are deep cultural differences. There are deep differences of experience. I think the British majority of, of native-born uh, folks are often very anxious that their sense of what it is to be British and part of the nation is under attack from people who don't kind of understand what makes us British. Okay, that's fine. And, and, and I think that has to be respected, but not indulged, uh, because, you know, the greatness of, of the conception of Britain that you know, welcome me as a foreigner, welcome my father as a refugee was, come on in, you know, learn how to make a cup of tea, put the shilling in the meter, you know, stand up when the when the anthem is played, show some respect for the Queen and, you know, get on with it. You know, that... Rather tolerant, rather indifferent, rather open Britishness was a huge source of strength to this country, and it's under some pressure because there are a lot of people coming in and people say, well, do you belong or don't you? So, there's a huge ongoing battle about national identity, and liberals have to be at the center of it, saying, fighting for an inclusive, uh, embracing, uh, warm, compassionate vision of the country, against more fearful, aggressive, exclusionary visions. and But that battle's going to go on. All I'm saying is we
1: need to be in there fighting for it. I, mean, I agree with all of that. I mean, I, I, just, just to pressure on what my original question was, because my yeah. original question is, how did liberals get it wrong? And the way yeah. you answered that was by saying, Orban got it wrong, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is fine. Yeah. Uh, but th- I, I suppose I wanted a little bit more self-critical vigilance. Oh, you won't get self-critical vigilance from me, mate. You know, <laughs> <laughs> nothing but
0: self-congratulation day and night. No, look, there's an issue. There's an issue. Liberalism has been associated with a certain kind of moral universalism. One of the strengths of liberalism after '45 was a sense that nationalism had basically destroyed European civilization and racial hatred had pretty well destroyed everything. And so we had to create a kind of universal human rights and widen the sense of the human family and decolonize. And some of that stuff was terrific. But it put an emphasis on universalism, moral universalism, sometimes at the price of respect
1: for national and sovereign belonging. And so was that moral universalism? A form of imperialism. Sometimes it's accused of that. Well, it was. It sometimes
0: it was associated with imperialism in the sense that, you know, human rights is a European thing that's good for export to the whole world. And a lot of our friends in Africa and Asia said, "Hey, wait a minute. We've got some traditions of our own that you need to show a little more respect, and you need to have a little more self-consciousness about the damage that empire did here." I'm not one of the things people who thinks that you know, the European empires of the British Empire was an unqualified disaster. I don't think that. I don't think an honest Indian thinks that either, actually. But let's, let's get real that this was a very painful and difficult history for the people who were subjected to empire. So liberals have had to confront the the ways in which their universal story neglected national belonging and the way their universal story neglected empire. And so we've had to kind of fess up and face up to the limits of our historical story. But let's remember another thing. We've lived through a liberal revolution that has transformed the society. By liberal, I mean women's equality, equality of gay men and women. Uh, racial equality. These are not exclusively liberal achievements, because there were a lot of conservatives who thought we got to go with that, and there are a lot of socialists and a lot of communists who went through it. But it's fundamentally a liberal revolution that did make life a lot better for a lot of people. But it's frightened a lot of majorities who think, wait a minute, you're enfranchising them and you're, you're not paying any respect to our concerns. So liberals have to kind of, we got to listen and learn.
1: Back to Orbán for a second, because the other thing that Orbán uh, has done, of course, is is sort of weaponized religion. You know, this sort of idea of Christian democracy, Christian democracy yeah. um, which seems to be uh, you're shaking your head and you're raising your eyebrows and looking downcast. And as someone who's as someone who's religious myself, I find this a really worrying development. Yeah, well, I'm not especially. Religious, but when he
0: uses the language of Christian democracy, um, you'd never know that this is a religion of mercy and compassion. you'd never know it's the it's it has the story of the Good Samaritan in it. you'd never know this is a language of forgiveness. you'd never know it's a language of redemption. you'd never know it's a language that says to the stranger, "Come on in." I mean, it gets me emotional. I get This is where I get angry at them, the shameless exploitation of a tradition that I'm not part of, but for which I have deepest uh, respect. Uh, that's one issue. The other issue is is that Christian democracy uh, built Europe after the Second World War. I mean, liberals walk around saying, we invented everything, the welfare state, everything that's good. But the hard reality is that post-war Europe was built by conservatives. I mean, when we talk even about the British uh, post-war welfare state, it wasn't just built by Clem Attlee. It was also built by Harold Macmillan. It was built by secular people, and it was also built by religious people. It was built by liberals and by conservatives. It is a shared inheritance. And this Christian conservative tradition in Europe was pretty important. I mean, we wouldn't have a uh, uh, European Declaration of Human Rights without Winston Churchill, right? So so part of what makes me so angry about 21st century conservatism is the ways it's jettisoned this very distinguished past and become increasingly intolerant with a definition of Christianity that many Christians wouldn't recognize. It's just jettisoned half of the Christian message. And it's also much more seriously jet- jettisoned the attachment to constitutional order. I mean, these, these Christian conservatives were f- were fundamentally constitutional because they remembered a conservatism of the 1930s that cozied up to Hitler and basically broke apart the Weimar constitutional state. So these Christian conservatives of the post-war were fiercely constitutional. That is to say they believed in liberal democracy. Now you look at conservatism in the twenty first century and you've got a lot of conservatives at the far right who are their their loyalty to the constitutional order at the limit is in question. AFD in Germany, Viktor Orban in Hungary, Kaczynski in Poland, a good Turkey. Catholic, a good Catholic, a good it, it's, Christian it's, it's... and yet their conception of Christianity is deeply deformed, in my view, as a non-believer, yeah. and their view of the constitutional order is is open to authoritarianism in a way that would
1: shock a Christian conservative of the post-war era. It's part of what's being said with you know Christianity in Hungary. Is it sort of dog whistle? I'm not Muslim. Is that is that part of what's being said by the yeah, invocation it's do- of... Yeah, dog whistle, Christi- I'm not Muslim, and dog whistle, I'm not Jewish. <clears throat> you know, I mean, yes,
0: exactly. And, and and that's the part that angers me. And it's also a, it's also a country that is deeply secularized. You go to... It's a,
1: it's a hard one. The Jewish one's a hard one, isn't it? Because I know... So th- there is the sort of Orban Soros... Uh, yes. axis that's yes. often but then there's the Orbán netanyahu friendship yes. which is yes. which makes the whole thing a rather three-dimensional chest doesn't it you have
0: a discourse in hungary i mean in 2018 in early 2018 every single poster in budapest had a picture of george soros laughing saying don't let george soros have the last laugh Where have we seen that before? That's one of the oldest figures in European anti-Semitism, which is the laughing Jew. The Nazis used it to basically say to the German public, why are the Jews laughing at us? The Jews are laughing at us because they control our money, they control our lives, and we don't even know it, and they're laughing at us. So we're going to wipe the smile off their faces was the way this stuff went. And so a guy like Orban, who I don't think is personally anti-Semitic, I don't know one way or the other, is trafficking in a language that is infinitely dangerous. And he's using this Christian stuff to kind of cover it, you know, And, and, and then covering it also by saying, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu is my best friend. And all of this is swimming in very dark, very troubled waters. And I think he's... He's conjuring up demons from the deep. He's playing with fire. And a lot of European politicians are doing this. this is happening in Poland. It's ha- happening in other places in France. It's happening in, with the Marine Le Pen on the right wing of French politics. There's a little shadow of this in some parts of the British left. This stuff is poison. We've been here. We know
1: where this story ends. It's got to stop. It's very interesting isn't it that uh, all the other in European politics the this is you mentioned the right and then when it come to Britain this yeah. is the left how how, how it's, it's a puzzle that the left uh, has such a problem with antisemitism that antisemitism has reformed itself and in in a way that the left just can't has a tin ear to
0: yeah, it starts in a place that you can sort of understand, which is that Palestinians have suffered under occupation. There's no question about that. I've been to Ramallah, I've been to Gaza, I've been to these places. You, some of this is humanly deeply painful, especially, especially in fact, for someone like me who's a strong supporter of the state of Israel. You start from a good place. You start, or you start from a place you could defend, which is that Palestinian. Have rights and those need to be defended, and you very quickly get into something that is increasingly ferociously anti-Israel. You get into boycotts of a democratic state. You get into you get into a place you really don't want to be. And I think it's inhabited the left. It basic, basically became the foreign policy of the British left in ways that just. Took people over, and, and and anti-Zionism then shaded into an anti-Semitism, that is just very pernicious. And I talked, I talked to a Jewish friend in London yesterday who said for the first time in my life, I don't know what kind of country I'm living in. A man born and bred, ancestrally linked to this country deeply you know as british as you could be suddenly thinking i don't belong here well that's a that's a catastrophe
1: catastrophe that's
0: a catastrophe for the left and so the anger about anti-semitism in the british labor party is
1: entirely appropriate this stable has to be cleansed no question about it um as we were walking up here like when we walked up to the studio together and you told me that you're writing a book on on consolation, yes. and I have to say, when I Boethius and Marla and all, very yeah. interesting. Um, and, and when I heard you first say this, and I apologise to you for this. I thought to myself, is this is this somebody who was disappointed in politics? Oh, and yeah, yeah. so this is what where my my yeah. brain went, you know. And um, it's an, uh, and, it's, and actually, you're not a you're still you're very optimistic <laughs>
0: this is... oh yeah no i'm not i i don't i don't think i i'm writing a book about consolation because i feel in need of consolation <laughs> for, I, what... for all my many failures i have many <laughs> failures more than we've even had time to discuss no it's not that i'm very struck by the by the wisdom of some of the ancient languages of consolation some religious some not um i think we've lost contact with some of these old languages of consolation, the language of the Psalms, the language of the classical Stoics, um, the wisdom of Montaigne. Um, the deep wisdom to be found in the music of Gustav Mahler and on and on. There's some way in which um, what has replaced it is a language of therapy. Self-care. And self-care. There's some weird way in which we think that um, sadness, loss, are illnesses from which we can be cured. And I wanted to get back to languages that know something else, which is there are some... Forms of sorrow and loss that, for which we can only be consoled. And then the question is, how we console people. You, 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 as a, as a person with a parish, know what it's. You know, part of your job is to console people in the face of loss, and um, and you know from that experience that this is one of the moments where human beings are simply wordless. They just there's nothing you can say about the death of a child or the death of someone you love passionately or a defeat that just stuns you, you know. That's an important thing about human beings. We can be really deeply hurt by things and we need each other to get through it. And so the thinking about consolation is how we get through tough moments together. You know, that's,
1: that's what I'm trying to think about. That's what I love about the Psalms is that it's just the whole idea of lamentation, that there is such a thing as a... And this is religious language, but there is such a thing as a prayer, which is basically crying. Yes. Which is the sort of verbal yes. expression of crying. And yes. that that might happen publicly yes. is something that is in a totally different place from, as you say, the language of therapy or yes. self-soothing yeah. and all that sort of yeah. stuff, which yes. is... Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think... Um, um,
0: I learned something about the Psalms. I used to go out to, you know, out to prison, and I noticed that all these sinners, and they'd some done some terrible, shameful things. A lot of them turned to the Psalms. It was interesting because it is crying. You're absolutely right. That's the thing that the Psalms, a consoling language, is a language that knows what you're seeking consolation for. Consolation to be convincing must know what it is like to suffer, what it is like to be really hurt. The great thing about the Psalms is it knows about that all the way down. And The other thing that's so touching about the Psalms, this is 2,500 years old, right? I mean, this goes back to the... They're among the oldest documents of, of human culture, and yet they're just so you read them and you think, boy, these people really understand what it is to be desolate and
1: frightened. And it gives you a sense that pain is one of the basis of human solidarity. So, you know, over time and over place and, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for a godless heathen like me, it's been quite
0: a journey, you know, just (laughs) kind of returning some of these languages, thinking about them. Um, I'm also looking at the languages of consolation, but also the revolt against consolation. It's important to say that side too. There are people who felt that Christian faith or any faith was trying to adjust people to suffering, reconcile people to suffering, reconcile people to injustice. So, there was a revolt against the language of consolation. I mean, you you, you see this in, in Karl Marx, you know, Marx said, you know, famously that the root of all criticism is the criticism of religion. Why did he say that? Because he thought as a young man, passionate rebel in the 1840s, that it was religion that was, you know, accustoming, adjusting people to intolerable injustice. Well, so, you know, the Communist Manifesto is one big cry against Refusing consolation, and instead of consolation, we want revolution. We yeah. want we want to change things. So, I'm looking at the language of consolation, but I'm also looking at the revolt against it. My my senses were were coming out of the revolt and returning to consolation because the revolt failed to deliver the results that many of these people had the hopes they had in revolution the hopes they had yeah, in yeah, politics yeah, yeah. the yeah, hopes yeah. they had in so um but i'm still exploring i'm still out there trying to figure out what what i
1: want to say Mike ignatif thank you very much for joining me pleasure, Cheers, pleasure. Cheers, mate. thank you thank you for listening to this episode of confessions with me giles fraser if you're enjoying the podcast please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing, and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.